A couple of weeks ago, a big story emerged from world rugby. New Zealand rugby is loath to ban transgender athletes from the women's game, despite world rugby investigating a move to do so. Now this came a bit out of the blue, but discussion of the rules around male to female trans athletes' participation in women's sport has been going on for some time. The Samoa Weightlifting Federation says the gold medal aspirations of one of its leading athletes have been dashed by rules that allow a transgender athlete from New Zealand to compete at the Commonwealth Games. Laurel Hubbard, who formerly competed as a man, won medals in the women's over 90 kilogram division at last year's World Championships. The lobby group Speak Up for Women wants the government to step in over the disadvantaging of women and girls in sport. I don't think I am a world champion because I'm a trans woman. I put in the work. I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail I'm speaking to sports scientist Ross Tucker. Ross is based in Cape Town. He's a co-author of the World Rugby Guidelines. He was in the working group. He arranged the workshop and conducted much of the scientific work in the report. He also hosts a podcast called The Science of Sport. But before we get into this, just a little bit of housekeeping. This isn't a discussion about whether trans people should be able to play sport. That obviously isn't a question. Everybody has the right to play sport, full stop. It is a literal human right. The issues we're getting into here revolve around competing values, inclusivity, safety and fairness. The arguments here are complicated and nuanced and we'll get into them, but it might be helpful to start with a fundamental question. Why do we separate sport according to biological sex? Here's Ross Tucker. What sport is trying to do is juggle or walk this line between identifying exceptional individuals, and we give a gold medal or an Olympic title or a World Cup to the group or the individual who expresses those best. But we do so within a sometimes arbitrary range or categorization, because if we didn't do that, then the smallest boxer would never win. The athlete with the most severe cerebral palsy would have no opportunity to ever win that medal. The 16 or 17-year-old would never have an opportunity against a fully developed 24-year-old. And then similarly, those who are female and therefore physiologically different in their biology would have zero chance of winning those medals if they had to compete in an open category against males because the scientific biological differences between men and women are so large that it would render women irrelevant in elite level sport. Therefore, what we do is we protect a category of people who do not have the advantage in order for their sport to have the same meaning as the group that does have the advantage. So rather than actually discriminating through separation, it actually creates equality because now we can have a Usain Bolt receive a 100-meter gold medal and we can give the same medal, equal in value, to Shelley Ann Fraser-Price because they've both expressed the attributes that we recognize as making them the world's best sprinter. But Bolt is 10 to 15% faster than her because of being biologically male. What are those biological factors that mean that men broadly are faster and stronger and more powerful than women? When children are very young, before the age of 11 or 12, boys and girls can play together in sport and there is very little difference between them. 
And then what happens is this physiological, <laughs> call it marvel, of puberty and adolescence kicks in. And what that does in males, because they have testes, and those testes then produce testosterone along with a few other hormones, which collectively are known as androgens. And that's a word that means male making. So androgens are responsible for generating maleness, quote unquote. Now, there are many elements to that, and much of it concerns sexual reproductive function, but that's not relevant to sport. The bits that are relevant to sport are increased muscle mass, increased skeleton growth, so we get longer bones, thicker bones, increased bone density, changes the shape of the skeleton, so men tend to develop narrower pelvises relative to women, increased height. The cardiovascular system changes, we get a larger heart, larger lungs, more hemoglobin, it's responsible for carrying oxygen throughout the body. So what that does, is, in particular, the muscle mass and the muscle growth that affects the tendons, is it creates in males who've undergone a puberty under the influence of these androgens, greater strength, greater power, greater endurance capacity, and the ability to produce forces at higher speeds than in women. So the separation then starts to occur once people reach uh, puberty, adolescence. By the time they reach early adulthood or even late teens, 18 or 19, that difference in a running event, for instance, is 10%. So the best boys are 10% faster than the best girls. In strength and power events, it's even larger. So in weightlifting, for instance, the best 16 and 17-year-old boys are 20% stronger than the best adult females. So young men are stronger than adult women. By the time they get to adulthood, that gap is around 30%. So the performance differences appear because of biology, mostly around muscle and mostly under the influence of testosterone, the hormone. It might seem a bit condescending to think of women's sport as being like a protected class, especially when these ideas of size and power difference aren't universal. For example, I am a biological man. I'm six feet tall. Okay, I'm five feet 11 inches tall. 65 kilos, not particularly in shape. Valerie Adams is six foot three, 120 kilos, and an absolute powerhouse. And this brings us to the idea of overlap. If I took the world's population and I lined them up from shortest to tallest, shortest on my left, tallest on the right, there would be a considerable overlap between men and women. You would have men mixed with women throughout that spectrum. But by the time you get to the far right extreme, which is the tallest group of people in the world, they will be almost entirely men. And the question that is relevant is, at what point along that spectrum does the first woman appear, if we go from tallest back down towards shortest? And that's quite an important concept because it is true that there is overlap, and that overlap is sometimes large. If you take, for instance, uh, the women's marathon world record that was set just last year. A stunning victory for Kenyan runner Bridget Koske at the Chicago Marathon as she shattered the women's world record by more than a minute. That is an athlete who would go to most local marathon races and win it outright. She is so good that she is better than probably 95% of men. But she is not better than the other 5%. And the, the data that exists largely comes from sports like running. And for instance, it is known that there are 10,000 men who are faster than the fastest woman in the world over 100 meters. That group of men that is faster than the fastest woman includes 15 and 14-year-old boys. So there are some just gone through puberty and adolescence boys who are faster than the fastest woman in history. So there is some overlap. 
But the argument for sport is this. When we compare men and women, we, we don't want to compare a very fast woman to a mediocre man. There's no value in, in doing that. So the comparison between, say, Paula Radcliffe or Katie Ledecky in a swimming pool is not against someone like me, who's a very mediocre athlete, or you. It is against someone who is competing at the same relative level. We decided as a society long ago on a binary approach to sport. The thing is, we're not a binary society. An increasing number of people are discovering their biological sex does not match their gender identity, and they have the means and the ability to take steps to remedy that. Transgender people. So how is the binary nature of sport complicated when it comes to trans folk? Considerably is the short answer. Because I think a decent, tolerant society understands that there are people whose gender identity does not match their biological sex. They were born male. They underwent this male puberty that I've spoken about under the influence of testosterone and other androgens. Their sexual reproductive system was was biologically male. But they identify as women and vice versa. There are those who are born female but identify as men. And a tolerant and decent society accepts that that's happening and is the case and therefore wants those people to have every right to identify. The trouble for sport is that it creates a situation effectively of colliding rights because there's a question now around whether that person's self-identification imposes on another person's rights for, in this instance, fair competition and in some instances, safe competition. Sport now has to either balance those two rights or in the failure or the absence of being able to balance it, it has to make a decision that prioritizes it. And in the end, this creates what is, in my opinion, sport's most complex problem because there is no simple solution. Irrespective of which way one goes, it creates a situation where there's a trade-off, not an answer that satisfies all parties. Ross Tucker says there's a big headline question here. Should male to female trans athletes be able to participate in women's sport? And if so, how do we go about that? Obviously, you can't just allow carte blanche self-identification. Otherwise, you get situations like the male rapper Zuby, who in a social media video said he identified as a woman for 12 seconds and proceeded to break the women's powerlifting world record. So the solution that was then offered by sport is if we lower the testosterone level of trans women, in other words, biological male now identifying to compete in women's sport, let's get that testosterone level down and take away those advantages. That was the theoretical solution that was proposed. So your headline question is, do we allow transgender women to compete in women's sport? The fine print is after lowering the testosterone below a certain level for 12 months to take away any advantage. That's now, I think, for most people, the question that's on the table. What that then leads to is a number of sub-questions. And I will reveal here very clearly my bias. I'm a physiologist, a biologist. And so when I look at that question, I ask, well, what's the biological evidence that it works? The bar for how much has to change is set by the initial difference. So for instance, We look at lean mass or muscle mass, which is between 30 and 40% difference between men and women. For strength, we see differences between 40 and 60% between biological males and females. For VO2 max, we see differences, for instance, around 50%. For power, that difference is between 30 and 40%. 
and for speed, it's about 10 to 15%. So when we then look at the evidence, we say, well, if that's the bar, if that's the initial difference, how much of it is taken away? And the unequivocal, clear answer from these 11 studies is that only about one-fifth of the initial advantage is taken away. So where lean mass, muscle mass, is 40 to 50% difference, the studies show that it takes away between 5 and 8%. Where strength is 40 to 60% difference, the studies show between 5 and 10% reductions in strength when you lower testosterone. So the biological conclusion is that the, the lowering of testosterone does impair performance by between 0 and 10%, but the initial differences are between 40 and 60%, and therefore it does not achieve even a quarter of what would be required to guarantee fairness and safety. That's my read of the biological studies that have been published. It might be that for sports like endurance running, the advantage is removed completely, but for strength, power, and mass-based sports, that advantage is at best only slightly taken away when you lower the testosterone levels. Is this issue, do you think, especially pertinent in a sport like rugby, more so than in other sports? I think it's pertinent for different reasons, and it may be prioritized differently for those reasons. So when an athlete is running in a track and field event, there is very little risk of safety to participants. In rugby, that situation does not exist. There is a significant injury concern, as you would most likely know, being in New Zealand, you understand the sport very well down there. And so rugby's stated priority has been, for the last five, ten years, player welfare. It is it is always spoken of as the number one priority. So when we look at a question like this, we have to also factor in the safety elements. The fairness elements, of course, matter, because whatever creates a safety concern might create a fairness concern. You can sit down with every intention to balance these different priorities, safety, inclusion, and fairness. And, and to be very clear, rugby wants desperately to be inclusive. It, it positions itself as an inclusive sport and really values that element of it. But when the inclusiveness starts to create potential issues for fairness, and again, maybe even more importantly for safety, then the question shifts slightly because now you're asking can we achieve a balance between these three things? And if the answer to that is yes, then that's fantastic. But if the answer to that is no, then you have to start thinking about making some difficult decisions. Because as I mentioned, there are trade-offs now. And it leads one to say, well, what's actually the priority? And the, the World Rugby position, and it was leaked last week and was followed up by a press statement, is that the prioritization was player welfare. And it was felt based on the published evidence at this point in time and again, this could change in future if evidence were to emerge. But right now, there is no evidence to assure that there would be a, a, an equal safety risk. And it creates, in fact, an increased safety risk. And therefore, that guideline was advised for consultation the way you would have seen it. But size disparities already exist in rugby. Over the weekend, I watched an old All Blacks match in which the five foot eight, eighty kilo George Gregan smashed the six foot four, hundred and twenty kilo Jonah Lomu. So how is this any different? You're right that there is a disparity between within a group of males and within a group of females between the smallest and the largest. Those disparities 
span around 30 to 40 kilograms. So the lightest men are about 40 kilograms lighter than the heaviest men, and the same is true for the women. So when you, when you take, let's say, someone in the bottom 5% of women tackling the top 5% of women, you'll get a large disparity in mass and potentially strength and speed and all that sort of stuff as well. The issue for this particular question is what happens if you allow crossover from one to the other? Because then that disparity becomes even larger. So, for instance, we know that the typical male rugby player is 40% heavier than the typical female player. That's about the same difference as the heaviest female to the lightest female. But the problem is that the heaviest male, or not even heaviest, but let's say someone in the top quarter of men's mass, is about 70% heavier than the typical female. So if you allow crossover, you stretch out that range. So in other words, I, I hope that makes sense, is that whatever the range is within women and within men's rugby increases by a large degree when you allow crossover of, in this instance, a even average person to come across to it. So for instance, the typical male is heavier than the top 1% of all women. So a typical male, added to the women's group would increase the range of masses in women. Now that's just mass. So we know that the mass is different. It doesn't account for strength. So that male player already also has a 30 to 40% difference in strength compared to the female player. They're 15 to 20% faster than the female player. And mass and strength and speed are the three most important risk factors for injury. So the theoretical argument then goes that if one allows even a typical male weight, speed, and strength, I'm not assigning gender here, I'm just saying if, if, a, if a person who is biologically male with typical attributes for strength and uh, mass and speed were to compete against typical or even extreme women players, they would introduce a set of variables that is simply not seen in the women's game. Mm. And that's what would then create the theoretical injury risk in that group. One line of argument here is that if the biological athletic difference between men and women is so high, why aren't Olympic podiums full of trans women already? And the answer to that is that even if there are thousands of men who are faster than the fastest women, the fastest women are still incredibly fast, obviously. The only people who, after the testosterone treatment, would have a hope against a top-level female sprinter would already have to be close to Olympic-level male sprinters. And at this point, very few people of that athletic calibre have transitioned. But this brings up another point. High-level athletes are competitive. Some biological women might not actually mind competing against male-to-female trans athletes, even if they accept there may be increased risk of injury. People like the Wellington rugby player Alice Soper. Look, I'm not worried about it. We, we have such a range of people that are playing such a range of abilities. I'm just as much danger of getting hit by Linda Aitinu than I am of a trans woman that would be playing. So we wouldn't, I'm not, I don't have any concerns as a player being on the pitch. So I just don't think we need to be going any further backwards than trying to exclude any more people from our game. So what would Ross Tucker say to her? I'd say that's commendable and I, I think it's great that she has that opinion. It's not the only one. So we, we tried to survey as many of the world's rugby-playing women as we could through the International Players Group. And the mandate that came out of that, and to be very clear, that, that, that was not a survey that informs the policy. We're not trying to come up with guidance based on some democratic viewpoint and feedback in a survey. But it was quite clear in that that there was a real split. And we had 
I think it was around 10 to 15% of the, the respondents in that survey expressed sentiments very similar to those. Uh, many more others said that they were very concerned about it, and a large number said that they just simply didn't know enough about the biology and the evidence, and that they would withhold any opinion until such time that they knew that. And our, basically, then, the way that we applied that survey was we said, right, well, it's clear that this survey gives us a mandate, or actually asks us, gives us a responsibility to go and explore that evidence. And so it pushed us further along the lines of evaluating the biology. The plan now is to go back to those players and say, well, this is the situation and, and how do you feel? What is the solution? Maybe a separate division, a new category in sports for trans people? Yes, it would be an issue of numbers and perception. Uh, bearing in mind there are many places in the world where there are significant stigmas attached to being trans mm. and there is a justifiable concern around then having a third category that might just draw attention to that stigma and create even more hostilities. That was a similar issue actually to what was discussed around the Casta Semenya case. You'll recall that she was at CAS last year. She's not transgender. She, she has what's called a DSD, a difference in sex development, which often gets conflated with this issue. They're subtly different. But the same issue existed there is that there are there are still many places in the world where it is not acceptable to not conform. And sport would have to be careful that it doesn't actually just propagate those stigmas. So that's the one problem. The other one is the, the logistics. Are there enough players for it? One idea that has been discussed is whether there needs to be an open category where people like the player who you've just mentioned can accept that risk. You see, because a great deal of risk management is what are you able to and what level of risk will you tolerate? And if a person says, I'm actually okay with this risk and I will play, then then that could potentially open the way to do that. So is there a possibility of an open category, an open competition where teams are able to be made up of mixed players, in other words, biological female and trans women? These are conversations that we have to have with the people who are affected by them. But yes, it's a third category, an open category, and a modified form that has certain things in place. There's a lot being discussed, and, and again, we're committed to trying to figure out a way to do that in a way that's that's acceptable to all the parties. This is a heated emotional issue. You've written about it extensively. Some people have described your work as exclusionary or anti-trans. Um, do you consider yourself anti-trans, and wh why do you think that this is an important conversation to have? No to the first one, and it's... It's regrettable but understandable when emotions run high that that accusation is leveled. It's probably going to sound trite and not very reassuring to people, but my perspective is very narrow on this. I see people debating trans rights in society and things like shared spaces, bathrooms, prisons and so forth, and I honestly have no real opinion on that because I don't consider myself knowledgeable enough to add any value to it. So I approach this very much from a sporting context, and therefore it's really just about the physiology. It's about the strength, the power, the lean mass, the VO2 max, the tendons and the, and the muscles, and the body fat, for instance. Now, that probably doesn't help, and I realize that people want sport to be symptomatic or emblematic of a tolerant society, and I wish that that could be the case. So I don't think of myself as anti-trans. I, I wish that society would be accepting. I hate that even the guidance document suddenly creates a platform for people to attack transgender people as cheats and all that sort of thing. This is not the, not the case. 
It's just that I also understand that there is another group that's involved here, and it's the biological women who, let's be honest, have fought for 50 or 60 years to get women's sport elevated to the point where they can play it with some degree of recognition. It was 1984 that women ran in the marathon for the first time in the Olympics because they weren't considered strong enough and capable enough before that. And we know that women have had to fight for a place in society for many, many decades. And I am therefore as sympathetic to them when they're saying that our space, our opportunities, our fairness and our safety is being encroached uh, by this issue. And so if, if the solution to this particular one can be ring-fenced and if it can be applied only to sport and if sport can facilitate other ways for inclusion and to recognize those individuals as equal in society, then I hope that we can do that. But it's not, it's, it simply is not a matter of transphobia. But I don't think there's anything I can say that will convince people otherwise because they are so emotional. This is an issue that goes to the core of their identity. So when they react with a degree of emotion to it, then I understand and get it. I'm just sorry that there's no solution that satisfies all the parties. And we have to make these trade-offs, which are not going to be to some people's satisfaction. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Ross Tucker. Kaki te amo.